Praise the Lord. I want to uh, invite you to find your, uh, the chairs where you were, were sitting. And uh, my name is Bo Andrews. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Ken is, uh, is taking, starting his sabbatical for the next six weeks, uh, I'll get the opportunity to uh, be in the pulpit here for July and then I think uh, Stuart, or for June, and Stuart will uh, take up from there and preach until uh, Ken gets back uh, from his rest. I want to, yeah, uh, I, I, let's be praying for uh, Ken and the Newman family that, that God gives them rest and rejuvenation and time together as a pastor, that they get to sow into one another as husband and wife, and uh, that their three kids get uh, the enjoyment of the beginning of the summer just to have mom and dad around, um, and that God adds stability and strength uh, into that family um, and just loves on them. And so uh, we'll, be wel- we'll be ready to welcome them back when they get here. Um, I want to start today uh, actually by asking, uh, asking that we look at two screens that we just sang. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't the way I had planned it, but just sitting in the back and hearing us as a congregation sing these words. And I know that we're cognizant of the words that we sing, but I thought they were worthy of review. Today we get together and gather in God's house as His people, not because of any good work that we have done, lest we should boast, but because God's Holy Spirit drew us and God's Son paid for us that we can come today into His house and sing lyrics like this, Lord, You deserve the greater glory. Lord, greater than any glory that I give to anything else in my life, Greater than the glory I would give to a sports team. Greater than the glory I would give to my kids. Greater than the glory that I would give to my relationships with my wife. Greater than the glory that I would give to myself. God, you deserve the greater glory. And you know what? That kind of truth overcomes me. And so I lift my voice. And so I apologize over the month of June that I may do just that. As we get into God's Word, I'll admit to you there are times that even though I've prepared throughout the week, just something about being in God's house with God's people and sharing God's truth um, is hard for me to detach from and be an educator. Um, So I will tell you that I will be on this journey through the book of Galatians with you as we open God's Word and experience it together. To the king in need of nothing. That's who we've come to worship today. A king who has everything and doesn't even need our worship, but allows us to come. Empty-handed, I come to rejoice today. Empty-handed, all of us come today, not with a single good work that we could boast in. Not with anything to bring God that he needs. That's worthy of worship. And the next slide then says, so again, God, you deserve the greater glory. And overcome with joy, I sing. Because here's the truth. Simply by your love, displayed in a way that God loved the world, that in this way He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. In this love, and only in this love, I am accepted. 
What can I say to a king who is perfect and holy and has created everything and has dealt with my sin, not just in the past, but the ongoing wretchedness that is in my heart that makes idols for me daily, who not only puts up with me, but sings over me, the Bible says, who not only let me slip into salvation, but calls me an apple of his eye, who loves me individually just as I am, but loves me so much that he won't leave me where I am. He's a good and gracious king. And I wonder if we could just bow our heads as to start today again by worshiping him. Father God, <laughs> more than just more than just acknowledging that we're in your house, more than acknowledging that we're about to open up your word and ask you to speak to us. God, we come as sinners, as rebels, as undeserving in and of ourselves. And we come claiming only one thing this morning, that we are accepted in the blood of, of Jesus Christ and that that finished work of Christ given to us is is righteousness enough that we can be declared saints and holy ones, your bride, your children, and we can come today and call you Abba. So, Father, would you speak to us out of your word now? As we open it up, Lord, will you confront anything that has slipped into the way we view salvation? And would you focus our eyes again on the finished work of Jesus Christ? in a way that shakes off the heavy weight of performance-based salvation and lets us breathe in the freedom and joy of being sons and daughters of the Most High because Jesus Christ has died on on our behalf. Lord, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we come today to worship You and ask You to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What is redemptive history? Well, um, in one of my textbooks, I I found it uh, described this way. It's the historical accounts in Scripture that explain the various aspects of individual, corporate, and creation-wide redemption. Yeah, that that was my reaction, too. So maybe I could say it this way. It's what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do to redeem His creation in the big picture and specifically to redeem His people. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says it this way. Long ago and in many ways, in many, at at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets the redemptive history of the Old Testament that started out in Adam 
with all people in mind that went through Noah in the same way, kind of all of humanity, that got narrowed down to a particular family and a particular nation through Abraham and then Moses and then David that gave God's covenant people the law to to conform them to the image uh, bearers that God had had desired for humanity before we fell in the garden, that, that gave them sin, uh, the sacrifices to cover up for those sins that humanity had done, that gave them priests to mediate between them and a holy God, that gave them prophets to warn them and call them back to God, that gave them kings to lead them. But in all of that, none of it, could save them. None of it could redeem them to the place that they could be restored in right relationship with God in a permanent basis. There had to be an ongoing priesthood with ongoing sacrifices and an ongoing effort to keep the law. Until, Hebrew says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Redemptive history that started out in the garden, that started with the fall of mankind and Adam and Eve, and moved forward from there through all of the Old Testament that we read where God gave His people ways to carve out holy space so He and they could be together. But always pointing forward since Genesis 3.15 to the coming Messiah who would come and would be the sacrifice that once and for all paid for and atoned for the sins of God's people. That this Messiah would come and He would not, though being all human, He would not fall from the the the, the living out of the law perfectly, from being the 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 picture of humanity and also uh, the, the way that the Hebrew says he's like the imprint of what God intended for us. He was a law keeper in every way. Messiah would come and he would do for humanity what we could not do. He was the apex of redemptive history that is now being lived out. And since Messiah has come, where, where we are going to get today in redemptive history. We got to the New Testament and the Gospels, and then we find this man, Paul, who's taking that good news that you no longer have to be uh, law keepers, that you no longer have to be um, uh, performance-based in the way that you address God, but that something's been done on your behalf that makes you able to come into the presence of God rejoicing and freely and without guilt and condemnation to be able to come to the Holy Creator and call Him Abba, the, the news of that had started to spread out from Jerusalem and, and into Judea and Samaria and then through guys like Paul that was taking it out into northern Africa and Asia Minor and churches were being established and Jews and Gentiles alike were finding the freedom of becoming Christian and being um, made right in their relationship with God. But there were also those who were still unbelievers 
who were called troublemakers and Judaizers that taught that Jesus was not enough. That if you wanted to really become right in your relationship with God, the first thing you had to do was become right in the old laws of ceremonial and dietary restrictions. And then once you kind of became a a good Jew, then you could embrace the Jewish Messiah. So, for instance, that you had to eat kosher and that you had to be circumcised and that you had to be keeping those kind of ceremonial laws. In essence, they were stealing the joy away from people who had found that they could be right with God simply through the work of Jesus Christ. And they were bringing them back in redemptive history, back into a place where they had to labor under the law. And so Paul, as he's most prominently gone on his first missionary journey, and he's crossed over into Asia Minor through Crete, and he's he's landed on uh, Antioch of Pisidia and established a church there and gone up into Iconium and done the same there. And then he's gone into Lystra and Derbe, and then he's gone back home, and he gets the news that in every one of those places that he's established a church and he's left people who are rejoicing in the goodness of God through Jesus Christ, that these troublemakers have come behind and started to load them back up with law-keeping. Now, before we jump into this letter that Paul wrote to those churches to defend his position, I want us to bring the ideas of this letter home to us. Because I don't think the problem of Jesus plus something was unique to Paul or to that time period in redemptive history. I think that it's innate in humankind to want to be working for our acceptance. I think that God created us, even in the passage that we read to start out with, that man and woman were created to be workers. They were created to work, to tend and keep the garden. That it's in our identity that God gave us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the world and have dominion over it. Laziness is a trait that we pick up out of convenience. But satisfaction, even I think in the deepest part of us we know, is when we put our hand to something and we, we work. Every year I ask the, the, the students and the youth to review some of their favorite memories of the year. And inevitably, the memories that they like the best are those times that we've had fun that's been connected with a service project. Because there's something about working and doing that we feel is capturing the, the, the use of our time that gives us maybe our identity of we're human doings as much as human beings. I also think that it's easy for these Judaizers to come to Paul's uh, churches, as well as it may be easy for us to recognize that when I can claim any part of my own salvation as being something I've done, it gives me a sense of, uh, of, of pride. It gives me a sense of, uh, like, I did that. That's, I, I, I want to own that. In a really ugly way, it also gives me a way to look down at other people who haven't achieved as much as I have in my salvation. And it gives me a way to rank myself among God's people. I would bet you today that if we're honest with ourselves, each of us fights those creeping ideas that get into our idea of what salvation is, that if I only did this, 
God would love me better. If I only conquered this, mm, man, God would really accept me and He'd be pleased with me. If I only got rid of this or if I only added this, but here's the deal. In every one of those, no matter how good they could be for our sanctification and working towards pleasing God, when they get attached to an idea that God loves me more or better if I perform, Paul's going to have some really harsh words for those ideas. He's going to say that those people who believe in that kind of stuff should be accursed, set apart for destruction. And as we get into that time next week and we talk about that little passage in, in Galatians 1, I think the reason that Paul's saying that they should be accursed is they're separating you from the only thing that saves us from the curse. See, the thing that saves us from the curse that God gave on man and woman of sin and death isn't our performance. It never was throughout all of redemptive history since Genesis 3.15 that we've been looking forward to the thing that saved us from the curse that in due season, God would give his son, born under the law, born of a woman, but born to pay for the penalty and cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And if you're separated from the one who can save you from the curse, that just means you're in your curse. Everything that we add to the salvation of the finished work of Jesus Christ is taking away the joy that we can have in that grace. Wow, I'm so far ahead of my notes, I don't know where to go. As we enter into the Galatians for our summer study, um, my prayer for us is that God would reveal every little way that the joy of our salvation is being taken from us as we let performance slip into our ideas of how God may love us based on what we do or don't do. And that we find such a renewed joy in just coming to God through the blood of Christ. Where no guilt and shame tear at us. That we find ourselves in the presence of God being renewed. And that in His presence, His Spirit bears fruit in our lives. Not that we're trying to bear our fruit to bring it to God, but that we find a renewed relationship with God that bears fruit in our lives. So um, today, I just want to take us through the first five verses of Galatians. I'm going to read those. It's important to remember that the Bible was not written to us, but it is written for us. That means that the Bible always has an original author and an original pe- uh, c- people a context. And today what we're going to do really quickly is cover the context of who the Galatians were. And then we're going to move to the for us part of, of what we can get hopefully out of the book of Galatians. And then we're going to cover these first five verses. The verses say, Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As um, people look at the book of Galatians, there's really almost no doubt that Paul, who states that it's from him and the brothers, is the author. Um, there is a little bit of, uh, of an idea of wondering who the Galatians were, only because there was a people group called the Galatians that lived kind of northern Turkey. But as Rome had conquered that area, it had also kind of adopted all of Asia Minor, including Turkey, as this region that the Romans referred to as Galatia. And so most probably, Paul is writing it to the churches that he established in that region on his first missionary journey. Not that it changes the theological part of the book at all, but I think it's interesting to at least observe that if Paul wrote that, if, if the letter of Galatians is a response to the Judaizers that in Acts 13 and in 14 chased him around in that original missionary journey, and if Paul's letter to the Galatians is back before Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, then it makes this book probably one of the first letters that Paul wrote. Most, most probably the first that he penned. And so we get maybe a bit more of, of a raw um, part of Paul uh, that we can see maybe by Romans and some of his later uh, letters that he's really um, fleshed out how he writes letters and what he writes ab- about. And we'll see a different tone in this letter uh, than we will uh, from others. That may be because it's an early letter. I think it's probably because of the content of the letter. But nonetheless, if this letter was a later letter, and it came after the Jerusalem Council, it, it begs the question why when these Jews come up from James, who are tempting the people to go back into keeping the law that Paul doesn't include in the letters, tell these people to go back and talk to James, I just left Jerusalem, seemed like everything was on the same page, goodbye. Uh, and problem solved. And so I think it's a, it's a pretty early letter to the churches of Galatia, not the people of Galatia. And that probably puts it around 47 or 48 AD, which is neat because think about this. This letter is probably coming within 15 plus or minus years of Jesus' crucifixion. So this is a thing that's a, a story that's freshly being told in Jerusalem and now beginning to move out from there. That's who it was to. The enduring truth of Galatians that I hope is for us and for all times is justification by faith alone. If that concept is lost, then everything about Christianity as we know it is lost. If justification by faith alone isn't right, then we need to start doing some things to work harder for our salvation. Martin Luther said it this way in his commentary on the book of Galatians. While we live here on earth, we will be accused, exercised with temptations, oppressed with heaviness and sorrow, and bruised by the law with its demands of active righteousness. Because of this, Paul sets out in this letter of Galatians to teach us, to comfort us, and to keep us constantly aware of this Christian righteousness. 
For if the truth of being justified by Christ alone and not by our works is lost, then all Christian truths are lost. For there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. On this truth and only this truth, the church is being built. He says again, St. Paul, therefore, in this epistle, goes about diligently to instruct us, to comfort us, to hold us in the perfect knowledge of this most Christian and excellent righteousness. For if the article of justification be lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. For between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of Christ, or between active and passive righteousness, there is no middle ground. He then who strays from this Christian righteousness must need fall into the active righteousness. That is to say, when he has lost Christ, he must fall, he must fall into the confidence of his own works. That makes Galatians a pretty important book. Because the thing that Galatians is going to be centered on is the thing that Christianity hinges on. How must a man be saved? In this book, Paul is going to write in some very authoritative tones. He's going to challenge some of the church's biggest leaders at the time. And because of that, he's going to set this book out much in the same way, I think, that the reformers set out the solas that largely came from studying this book. And so Paul's going to set this book out. Chapter 1 and 2, sola scriptura. Chapter 1 and 2, Paul is just going to set it out as, why should you believe me? Because look, none of the rest of the solas that we believe in can we have in confidence if the first one isn't right? Look, if Scripture's not right, then none of the rest of these can be trusted. Scripture has to be the Word of God if we are to believe what it says. And so Paul's going to take the first two chapters roughly of Galatians saying why the people in the churches of Galatia should believe his gospel that he's presenting them about, uh, about how to be saved. Then he's going to transition in roughly chapter, into chapter two, three, and four into telling them the truths that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then as he gets out of that, roughly the end of uh, chapter 4, early 5, and into 6, he's going to start explaining how we live out those truths for the glory of God alone. And so it's interesting, as we go through this book, I think you can set a pretty good outline just by looking at the solas behind us and tracking with them. And hopefully that's what we, uh, that's what we do. To do that then, Paul is going to really set out a tone in the first chapter that he can be trusted in what he's saying. It's hard for me to imagine the significance of keeping the law of circumcision and dietary restrictions 
the way that those the, the Jewish people at that time had to feel them. These were sacred to them. These were part and parcel of what it meant to be God's people. But without giving examples, I just want to challenge you to find the examples in your own heart of what you might also think are very, very important sacred pieces. Like without this, I probably can't be Christian. And without this, like God probably won't accept me in the same way. And I want to challenge us as we go through the book to continue to think about those things in our heart and judge them by what Paul says is the message of salvation. So verses 1 through 5, Paul basically gives us a, a summary of the rest of the book in that all of these components will be found in these first five verses. First, Paul says, Paul, his Roman name, um, I was taught uh, as a kid that uh, once Paul had his conversion experience, that he so rejected the person he was as Saul that he even changed his name to Paul. And um, I bring that up only because when God finally saved me later on in life, I had this temptation to change my name. Uh, I mean, mostly because B.O., uh, it just stands for other things, and other people have used that moniker that I could have gotten away with. And really, the only benefit I saw of it was I was the first kid to learn to spell my name in kindergarten, and I got the first gold star. But after that, it just didn't seem to bring a lot. And I thought, now that I was redeemed and a changed and new creation in Christ Jesus, I should change my name because Saul changed his name to Paul when he got saved. But then I kind of found this out, that back in that time, a lot of Jewish people had a Jewish name and then they had kind of their Roman name that they would inter interact with Roman society with. And as much as I like the story of Saul changing his name and like, I totally reject that person I was and I'm this person now and don't call me Saul anymore. Um, I think it's probably more likely that he went by Saul when he was in Jewish areas and then he went by Paul when he was in the, the Gentile areas. And these happen to be letters that are written to Gentiles. So he says, Paul, an apostle, a sent one, but look at immediately how he jumps in and qualifies that statement. Paul, a sent one, but not from men. I'm not being sent by the Jerusalem church to you. I'm not being sent by some other school of apostleship to you. I'm not being sent by Gamaliel or my, my previous education and rabbinical school to you. I'm not even being sent, not from men and not through men. No one came up and found me and laid their hands on me and said, Brother Paul, the word has a, uh, the Lord has a word for you. And the word of the Lord sent me to tell you that you're supposed to be an apostle and leave uh, your, your previous life of, of luxury and, and power within uh, the rabbinical schools and the Sanhedrin, and you're supposed to denounce all that and, and just go on mission for the Lord. He's like, it didn't happen by men, and it didn't happen through men. The reason Paul says, I am an apostle is through Jesus Christ and God the Father 
who raised him from the dead. Why is that important? Because what Paul is going to say in Corinthians 15 is that he's an apostle, but born out of season. He didn't get to walk with Jesus the way that the other apostles walked with Jesus. He didn't get three years of being in the company of Jesus as he walked the earth. But Paul wants them to know that that Jesus who was living and walked with those other uh, 12 while he was living rose from the dead so much so that he still called Paul in the exact same way. The risen living Christ called Paul. That's what he wants them to know. So my validation isn't that I went and hung out with James and John and Peter and they told me about Jesus, but that while I was on the Damascus road in Acts chapter 9, you can read the story, that I was on the road planning to persecute Christians and I was confronted not by a spirit, not by a ghost, not by an idea, but by the living Jesus Christ, who God raised from the dead and saw me and confronted me on that road. And if we go back in Acts chapter 9, and you probably know the story and read it, Jesus in that confrontation left Paul blinded, and, and Paul then had to go from there, and we'll, he'll explore it a little bit more in the first chapter of Galatians, uh, of Galatians. But he went from there, not immediately to Jerusalem, not immediately to the church and and the, the people who could disciple him. But Jesus instead led him to a healing in Antioch and then out for three years in Arabia and Damascus. So in essence, what Paul is telling his readers is I'm every bit a legitimate apostle as anybody else who spent three years in the presence of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus revealed this gospel to me. What does that mean? It means if you've got a problem with the gospel I'm teaching, don't think I got it wrong from James and John, but you've got a problem with Jesus Christ who gave it to me word for word when he revealed it to me. He then says, and all the brothers who are with me. Uh, the way that letters were written back then is that um, an author of a letter oftentimes would just go down to the marketplace, would find someone who is a professional letter writer, would bring them back to their house where them and others would set, and they would think through ideas. They would talk about them, and the, the professional letter writer would write the letter. And then he would go home with the letter and he would make it, and then he'd bring it back and they would make any changes and everything else. I'm just pointing that out to say that most probably the letters that we have in the Bible weren't somebody first draft to just going and writing that out. Even so much so that Paul and the brothers with him probably talked about ideas. And then Paul later on is going to say there's parts of this letter that are me writing it, not the person that, that, that other person who wrote it. And you can tell that because of the big letters that I'm writing uh, is what Paul says in this original letter. So these aren't someone in a trance meditating and God mysteriously moving on them. This is Paul saying someone with a brothers in a group talking about the things that God is doing. And then writing to the churches of Galatia, I think it's interesting he says churches because there is, in one sense, one universal church 
but Paul's also saying that there are assemblies and bodies of Christ. Um, this is a letter that he probably wrote that was a circular letter that when it got one place, they read it, maybe made a copy, and then passed it on. And then he gets to what he wants to say, grace and peace, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are, if you read back in manuscripts of that time, there was a way that you opened up a letter, and, and these were fairly common terms that people used. But I don't think Paul ever wrote grace and peace without feeling in his heart the specialness of it. Did you know that Paul never puts peace before grace, but that in every letter he writes, it starts out with grace, because by grace, we are at peace with God, our Father. Or maybe better said, by grace, because of what Jesus has done, God is at peace with us. Grace and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just gets right into the gospel, if you will. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Paul believed in the ages of this present evil age. In Ephesians 2, you'll see he writes things like, there is a prince of the power of the air of this age, this fallen age that began when sin entered into God's good creation in Genesis uh, chapter 3, when man and woman disobeyed and picked from the, the tree of the the. Uh, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate, and so entered in this evil age where sin and death rule and reign under the sovereignty of God. But Paul believed that there was a coming age, a coming age where Jesus Christ would come back and consummate what was begun, what was begun the moment that he was resurrected from the dead. See, Sin and death ruled from Adam until the second Adam, Jesus Christ, Romans says. The moment that that second Adam came out of the grave because the, the grave could not keep him, something new had happened. Jesus wasn't resurrected from the grave the way that we read in the Old Testament people were resurrected from the grave. Jesus wasn't even resurrected from the grave the way he told Lazarus, like, come on out of there and unwrap him. Jesus was a new creation from the grave in that he will never taste death again. Death and sin had been defeated in Jesus and the new creation, the new age started. Where are we in redemptive history? We're living in this between ages where something new has begun so much that the Bible says of you and I when we're in Christ that we are actually new creations, that we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? Because if we back up in redemptive history just to the time that we were all performance-based in our salvation, that meant that the best you could be is the same old you just managing your sins better. I hope that when I said that, you felt in your heart like a, ooh, what a heavy thing to be stuck just being the best you could be, having to manage your sin better. Isn't it great that Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us to rescue us from our sins and from that evil age? so that we could be in the blood of Christ, new creations. Right now, Paul would say it like this in Ephesians, 
that we are currently seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus in the spiritual realm. And now all we're waiting for is for this old body to catch up to what's already happened to our spirit. That God loved us and purchased us in Christ Jesus. He made us so new that he describes it as being born again. Can I tell you, I'm no longer in Christ Jesus just trying to manage my sins and being a better version of the debtor me. I I do. There are times that I fall from understanding what God has done for me and the fullness of what He's done in Jesus Christ, and I labor under the heavy weight of getting up that day and thinking that God's going to accept me that night by how I performed that day. And it steals my joy, and it steals my energy, and it robs me of all of the precious things that God intended for us to have in Christ Jesus so that Paul would say it this way, it is for freedom that God has made us free. Why do we let that get stolen? Don't enter again into the bondage of law keeping. No, we are in between. The the new thing has come and we are new. But we are certainly still waiting for Jesus Christ to come and make this world that we live in new. And so we cry along with all all of the saints, even so come quickly. And then he ends uh, in chapter, uh, uh, in verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father. See, all this that God has done on our behalf was done by God in total. Jesus did come and die for us, but it's not that the Son decided He was going to do that. It's that it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to enact redemption the way He did and the way redemptive history has played out. God all is involved in in every part of our redemption. And so what's the response that we should have to a God who has done that for us? Sola Deo Deo Gloria. That is the extent of my Latin. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or the way the song that we sang says this morning, you deserve the greater glory because you're a good and gracious king because I come empty-handed to the throne of grace and find their acceptance in the love that was given to me through the blood of Jesus Christ. Or the way the Reformer said it, because of the way the Scriptures lay out the truth of salvation, I can believe that God accepts me today only through grace, by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But listen, if you're in Christ... You are accepted by God no less than He accepts His own Son. That's how complete the work of Jesus Christ is on our behalf. Where are we in redemptive history? Let me ask, where are you in redemptive history? It's so easy and so logical to let works-based, performance-based salvation sneak in on us again. But I ask you, don't give away the freedom that you found in Jesus Christ. Don't give away the joy of your salvation. And as we go into this next part of the, of the service, we're, we're going to celebrate that exact thing. As we take the elements that are, are, are up here, we're going to be both looking back at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross where His body was torn and His blood was spilled, but we're also looking forward to the consummation of this age where we eat again with Christ Jesus in His presence. 
if you're having a bad day, turn to the end of the book, read Revelation 21, 22. Look, it all turns out with us in Christ in new creation celebrating God's goodness. That's what we're holding on to. And when we're there, it will all be... <laughs> Listen, would you read the end? When we're there, it's all because of Jesus who walks with us there. Romans 21, Revelation 21 says, in that place there is no light, there is no temple, there is no need because Jesus is there. Oh, wouldn't it be awesome to think back to times like this in our physical lives where we were being confronted with this truth that what Jesus did for us made us acceptable by God and then in that place, seeing Him, not with eyes of faith anymore, but like He's there. Man, I want to get in that line early just to be there with him. What's his eyes look like? What's his face look like? This man who had his beard plucked, who felt the thorns on my behalf, who was scourged to the place a half dead, who carried the weight of that cross beam on the Via Dolorosa down, down to just be hung up on it so that I could be forgiven of the sin of Adam and Eve eating from the fruit of the tree of, uh, of, of knowledge of good and evil because I got to eat of the fruit of the tree of life called the cross. Man, if you would come up um, to, to, to serve. Um, I won't call out his name because I don't want to embarrass him and he doesn't like being maybe noticed, but... Um, a guy named Jeff sent a text from our church to several in his fellowship group today, uh, this week. And it was a quote from Derek Kidner's commentary on Genesis, and the quote said this, Eve took and ate. So simple an act, so hard the undoing. And God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Think about all that God has done so that today we can come up and remember that as we take and eat together. The Lord's Supper at at our church is not just for members of our church. And so if you are a member of the church, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we want to welcome you to come and take of the elements with us and celebrate what draws us all together and unifies us, our Lord and Savior Jesus. But what we're doing up here is more powerful than just having a sip of juice and eating a a cracker. It's symbolizing something so special and so sacred that Paul warns the people in in Corinthians, don't come up here and partake of the blood of Jesus Christ and His body if you don't belong to Him. Because by doing so, you celebrate His murder, not the salvation He's provided, because you don't belong to Him. The book of Galatians is a sharp contrast between 
things like grace and the law, freedom and slavery. And in this world today, there's a sharp contrast between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. And it's not how you feel like you do with your works-based salvation. It's whether or not you belong to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. This that we're about to do is a wonderful celebration for everyone who belongs to Christ. But it is damnation for those who don't. So please come and celebrate with us if you belong to Christ. And please don't if you are not His. And the further warning is that right now, if you're at odds with somebody else in the body of Christ to the place that you feel like it's better to go to them and be reconciled, then please do that instead of partaking. And the Lord will be so pleased with the love that draws us together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May it always confront us. May your word never be easy to hear, but may it always be edifying. May it, like food, require us to chew and digest. And like good food, Lord, may it build us up as we digest and act on it. As we study Galatians, Lord, Would you confront us with every cheap substitute that we have allowed to come into our idea of what it means to be saved? And will you recreate the precious joy we had in those moments that we first understood that we were right with you through the blood of Jesus Christ? The first of our salvation, Lord, where we rejoiced that the old had passed and the new had come simply because by your grace, through faith, in Christ, we were made right with you. And now, Lord, will you bless us as we partake of these elements, as we celebrate that way of being right, the cross of Christ, and we look forward to the time where we get to be together with him for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.